0: When the sun rose over the island of Manhattan, on September 7th, 1609, Henry Hudson's crew was understandably tense. They watched anxiously as the bloodied shallop bearing five of their mates finally found its way back to the ship. They immediately recognized that only two of these five were still well enough to row. Another two had to be carried on board and their wounds treated, not by a ship's doctor or barber-surgeon as they were known in the era, as the VOC did not view this voyage as being worthy of such luxuries. But rather, by whichever of these remaining 15 crewmen felt most adept, improvising as a combat medic, which could possibly have even been Hudson himself. And the last of the five was John Coleman, the junior officer and translator whom they had come to know and like far better than either Hudson or the ancient, cynical Robert Chewett. They didn't speak Hudson's language, and he didn't speak theirs. And they'd been on this stinking, cramped, undersupplied ship for half a year of their young lives and they were now officially under siege by the locals. They also knew they'd have to remove that arrow that was still sticking out of their friend's throat in preparation for his proper Christian burial, somewhere upon this uncharted and now hostile new world. Twelve-year-old John Hudson no doubt struggled through it as well, longing for his mother and baby brother waiting at home, as his most approachable friend and mentor these past six months now lay lifelessly stiffening on the deck of the ship. Yes. It was time to go home. The tiny half-moon was cramped, and there wasn't a lot of privacy to grieve. And not one of these men was looking forward to setting back on land to bury the body. But above all, what mattered most was that after they laid John Coleman to rest, that they'd be raising their sails for that final, long, overdue trip home. At least that's what everybody on this ship wanted to believe. Everybody except the only man who held the authority to make that decision. But Henry Hudson hadn't come this far to cut and run now. Unlike his homesick crew, he didn't care about Amsterdam. He didn't care about the Dutch East India Company. He didn't really care about anything other than finding out once and for all if this majestic waterway before him, the one that would come to eternally bear his name, could actually take him to China. This is the podcast Island. The story of how this culture, this world, this island the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, Wow, history is cruel. Episode 3, China, 1609. John Hudson. Hudson was not operating on the level. Not with his Dutch employers, not with his Dutch crew and not with his Algonquin hosts. He had no intention of ever returning to this river and didn't care what kind of wake his Dutch yacht left behind. And this is the key difference between Henry Hudson and the next character in this story. I don't think that Hudson was ever very much interested in trade. His main obsession was discovery. So, what is Yap saying? Because... It's not always easy to just slip inside the mindset of intrepid interglobal adventurers and adequately wrap our hands around the specifics that went into this vast endeavor of international colonization. I mean, the tenets of this pursuit in this era of this now quite archaic practice may not seem readily apparent to us today. And within this profession of sailing to the unknown corners of the globe, in quest of finding, controlling, and profiting off foreign yet unclaimed lands, unclaimed by any acknowledged and established European rivals anyway, the distinction between discovery and trade may not be immediately apparent, especially to us 21st century earthlings whose own world has become so remarkably small in just the past few decades. But in order to understand these distinctions, in order to understand some of the mindset of these explorers of this era, we have to look back and acknowledge and understand just how different this earth was back in 1609. I mean, look, forget about Google Maps. That was four centuries off at this point. But even those globes, you know, those Commander McBrag globes that we all sort of took for granted in in most of our classrooms growing up. No, there weren't any globes of the world at this point either. Well, let me say there were globes uh, that were... Far too expensive, fragile, and inaccurate (laughs) to to ever be brought on one of these ships. And the scale, forget about it. It wasn't even close. Because people had no idea what the entire world actually looked like in 1609. And again, this is where you got to give it to these guys. I mean, no, they weren't perfect. Far from it. They each and all had their bumps and their shortcomings and their imperfections, but These guys operated on a level of chutzpah that is simply undefinable today. Again, Hudson, John Davis, Martin Frobisher, Willem Barents, these guys were in the process of charting the globe. (laughs) And in those days, there was only one way to do that, the old fashioned way. And as we've already talked about somewhat, Hudson tapped into whatever data and intel was available from earlier and or contemporary explorers, the data that he was able to get his hands on from these explorers, as well as from the aforementioned Captain John Smith. And truth be told, John Smith was more than just a friend, countryman, and associate of Hudson's doing a little snooping in this new world. In fact, This specific intel from Captain John Smith was instrumental in Hudson's interest in going west in the first place.
1: He apparently had contact with John Smith, who was uh, at Jamestown, and uh, had uh, received information from him and, and possibly some charts that there was something north of Jamestown that was worth exploring, and that it may very well be a passageway to the east. This is what Hudson had in mind. His contract read that if he couldn't go any further because of the ice and the weather, he was to return to Amsterdam. His wife and his whole family were there in Amsterdam. They were, they were like collateral or hostages.
0: <laughs> and so let's go back to what Yap was saying just before, that within this overall game of international exploration and navigation, there were four specific areas of focus. One, discovery, two, trade, three, settlement, and four, colonization. This is the standard gradual transformation of all colonization, not just in this new world, but pretty much everywhere on Earth.
2: You need geographical knowledge to sail safely and quickly to where you can get trade goods. Once the existence of good trade leaks out, despite efforts to keep info under wraps, small trading posts are set up. Next, there is the phase of first settlement, with a few colonists supporting trade by engaging in agriculture. Now, what also plays into Hudson's voyage is that these phases tie into the claims that Europeans use against each other. First discovery... Governmental charters, based on discovery usually, purchase of land from natives and actual occupation, boots on the ground. The most salient one of these pertaining to Hudson is discovery. An Englishman discovered the river in the service of a Dutch company. So who is the rightful claimant, the English or the Dutch? Same with charters, usually based on discovery. Add in the litigious legal culture of the time, created by an absence of governmental power to enforce legal judgments. And we have the situation of the 1650s and 1660s, with Dutch and English facing off in New Netherland. So Hudson ties in to what happens later on.
0: So yes, it's very important to remember that each explorer tended to specialize himself in one way or the other in one of these four areas of focus and each individual explorer would have his own reasons for selecting that particular area. Hudson's reason, as we've already discussed somewhat, was his own personal fame and glory on which he planned to cultivate personal wealth for himself. But the thing about the discoverers is that they're almost always a one-shot deal. Once a place is discovered, You know, (laughs) the cat's pretty much out of the bag thereafter. So, in other words, the discoverers are the trailblazers, so to speak. And then they, by nature, keep going, as Henry Hudson did. So now, why is trade the second item in this necessarily chronological process? Well, because you got to pay the bills somehow, right? any place that a nation or an empire is going to cultivate for potential colonization must have some kind of intrinsic internal value to it. And certainly in the 17th century, anyway, natural resources is really what we're talking about. And now that natural resource And that next major dude in this overall epic story who vigorously and emphatically exploits that resource will illustrate very, very well how pivotal the trade portion of this sequence becomes. And here's something that I refer to as the mad irony of this story, for lack of a better way to explain it, something that keeps repeating over and over in these Scenarios with these varying characters who one contradicts and supplants the next one and it tends to drive the story forward in this incredibly strange and unique way. And along with this odd continued pattern of randomness becomes the process by which we end up conjuring this place that we now call New York, which is simply unlike any other place anywhere on earth and as this mad irony continues on this will show us how remarkably insignificant Hudson becomes from there relative to this next character that I'm talking about because this next chapter which covers a much longer period of time than Hudson ever spent here and essentially becomes the very starting block for the system of trade that would facilitate what would transform this wild, fertile island into the financial capital of the universe? Yes, the origins of New York City as the monetary center of the earth, the roots of the financial system that exists within the island of Manhattan and the greater New York area did not start in the 1950s, it did not start in the roaring 20s, didn't start in the gay 90s, and it didn't even start in 1792 under a buttonwood tree. No. The system of trade that initialized this place as the epicenter of international commerce started in 1610, with the character who we're going to introduce you to next. Wait, 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 wait. That sounds big. Who is this guy? Well, it is big and he's a big deal because when all the news and journals and information from Hudson's 1609 voyage did finally find its way back to Europe, the Amsterdam money men did not want to bother with Hudson anymore. And they made a pointed decision to go find another type of explorer, somebody who they were confident was going to focus not just on trade but on the alliances that would further facilitate that trade going forward. Yes, and the gentleman who they did finally decide upon to entrust with sending back to this island is quite possibly more instrumental to the eventual creation of the greatest city on earth than any other person. Yes, infinitely more than Henry Hudson, who discovered it, who unveiled it, who let us know it was here, But that's all he did. And he caused a lot of problems along the way. And again, here is this randomness, really this organic randomness that has so uniquely shaped this place in a way that it's just not quite like any other place on Earth. Again, as we're seeing, Hudson had no interest in any part of this process beyond the initial glory of that discovery phase. And as Yap has told us, he felt strongly that if he could find that northern passage, he could find that very same fame that Columbus had attained over a hundred years earlier. And of course, Hudson was fully expecting to parlay that fame and glory into wealth via subsequent voyages for years and years to follow. But the thing is... (laughs) (laughs) That would require him to remain around doing more voyages for years and years to follow, which, well, we'll see about that. So, pretty much everything we've talked about in this episode so far points to one very simple fact. And that fact is that Henry Hudson was going to find that passage to Asia or die trying. Hudson would have been challenged to stay focused while reciting the Lord's Prayer over the makeshift ceremony. The late summer weather was idyllic and the ocean air invigorating, but Hudson's situation was anything but. There was a lot to think about, and he was running out of time. And watching his 12-year-old son help lower the corpse into the foreign soil, he also realized that he had to complete this current exercise, bid farewell to his young countrymen, and get his crew back on the ship before the bad guys came back for more. He still needs to know if the Hudson River is actually the passage to Asia. So what does he do from there?
1: Well, (laughs) the only thing you can do is go up the river
0: what the renowned archivists and translators, Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, Berthold Fresno, and Arnold van Leer put down over a hundred years ago. Our guest, Charles T. Goering, was hired to pick up almost 50 years ago. He was handed a stack of 12,000 moldy pages, handwritten in 17th century Dutch long script that had been rediscovered from the lost colony of New Netherland and he has been translating those pages ever since. These are documents that include notes and letters from Peter Stuyvesant himself. Tell me how was Peter Stuyvesant's handwriting? Terrible. (laughs) This work that Dr. Gehring has made a seemingly endless career of since 1974 entails not just the translation of words, but also a crucial analysis of the inflection and nuance intended for those words, as they are emitted from the psyche of a bold and intrepid Dutch pioneer 400 years ago. Dr. Goering is nothing less than an archaeologist of the mind and a living legend unto himself within this study of this lost civilization. I mean... This is not just a guy who knows a few things about Peter Stuyvesant.
1: Well, he probably um, wasn't taught in the secretarial hand that most clerks and secretaries went through in their education. Uh, He may very well have been taught by his father, who was a a domine, a minister in the Reformed Church. It is a very difficult hand. You can't appreciate it until you see it.
0: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I take your word for it. (laughs) This is a guy who has gone deep inside the minds of these 17th century Dutch colonists.
1: Yeah, you get to know the people very well. You develop a a sense of their uh, uh, way of speaking, their uh, attitudes, their relationships, and so forth.
0: So, how exactly did this happen? How did Dr. Goering find his way into this particular line of work, on this particular study? Well, after earning a PhD in Germanic linguistics with a concentration in Nederlandic studies from Indiana University in 1973, and after completing his dissertation on the survival of the Dutch language in colonial New York, This young man from the Mohawk Valley town of Fort Plain soon discovered that he didn't actually have to travel anywhere near Europe in order to ply his very specialized trade. And that because of the remarkable history of this specific region, his life's work would begin just an hour east of his hometown. He reported to the State Library in Albany where he was handed 12,000 handwritten pages that had been waiting over 300 years for someone with the abilities that he just happened to possess to come along. But what was the problem?
1: Uh, well, uh, initially the problem was that uh, many of the documents had been translated previously uh, by Adrian van der Kemp, who was uh, previous to uh, Van uh but uh, they burned in the fire the 1911 library that fire. was the fire right so historians had been using this translation of uh thunder Kemp in the 19th century uh, for uh, historical works about uh, New York and uh, 17th century colonial period. But once the, uh, the manuscript translation was destroyed, a new translation was needed. In fact, even before they were destroyed, translators uh, such as Fenlar, O'Callaghan, Ferno uh, realized they weren't very good translations and there should be a new translation undertaken.
0: And that is how pivotal Dr. Charles T. Gehring is to this overall study. So when I say this guy's an archaeologist, you see, I'm not kidding. Without Charles T. Gehring, the study of New Netherland and really the entire Dutch movement in the Americas regresses. And a lot of it literally disappears. Charlie Gehring is as responsible for rediscovering this lost colony and for educating the world about it properly as anybody ever. Arnold van Leer was a very highly respected Dutch translator who preceded Dr. Gehring from 1899 until his retirement in 1939. And there the pages sat until
1: 1974. He was able to... Uh, publish uh, four volumes of translations that he had been working on, including the first volume that burned up in the fire, which he had to take from a previous translator, E.B. O'Callaghan. Right, right. And uh, uh, with notes from memory of what uh, errors uh, he had in his translation. But eventually, uh, we started a project that would uh, start over again, building on Van Lahr's, uh translations. So there, we only have two volumes left, left. but they're, they're large volumes, and they were uh, da- damaged to some extent in the fire.
0: Yeah, so Charlie didn't write the book. He rewrote it properly <laughs> by translating it himself, <laughs> from 17th century Dutch long script, from the very words that Peter Stuyvesant and his intrepid pack of committed Protestant refugees projected from their souls upon this fertile island four centuries ago. So yes, Dr. Goering himself is living history to this remarkable school of study, and we are honored and privileged to be able to soak in some of his knowledge, spirit, and insight. But listen, don't just take my word for it. I mean, what do I know? (laughs) But what about a king and queen, like the king and queen of the Netherlands? What do they think about the work that Charlie does? In 1994, Dr. Goering received the distinction of being named Officer in the Order of Orange Nassau by Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands. And then in 2009, her son, Prince Willem Alexander, and his wife, Princess Maxima, visited New York City and Albany a few years before they became king and queen of the Netherlands. Now, a knighthood is an honor bestowed upon people for exemplary work in civil and or military functions, but I don't know how many Americans actually get knighted in the Netherlands. It's it's an incredible distinction. In fact, I looked up the various classes Aligned with this honor, Doctor Gehring actually received Officer, which is above Knight, which is just below it. So he's he's even higher than a Knight in the Netherlands. So some very important people think very highly of the work he's doing.
1: Well, if you're if you're around long enough. Uh... Uh, People start (laughs) giving you honors, whether you deserve them or not, but uh, I was uh, very honored. They were both here for the 400th anniversary of Hudson, 2009, and we had an exhibit in the museum called uh, 1609, appropriately, and very impressed by what we had, and they appreciated what we were doing here. They, they,
0: they, They do actually seem like really nice people. Uh they both are. of them uh, yeah.
1: they're they're very very nice. The Dutch put on no airs in official situations. They're very affable. I'm not going to mention any but any
0: other royal families, but uh, <laughs> That's all right. Wait, one per one a, per, per episode is fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so now with a fairly thorough understanding of just how valuable Dr. Garing is to this study of this incredible history, let's get back to that history. The day after burying Coleman, while still preparing, stocking, and sounding for their voyage to Asia, the Half Moon is visited by even more canoes, which could not have done much toward easing the minds of this tightly wound crew. And tensions come to a head the next day, on the 9th. When more natives come alongside the Half Moon, ostensibly to trade, and while no provocation seems apparent, Jewett reports that they perceived their intent nevertheless and use that as justification to abduct two of the Algonquins. Okay, now this thing, this abducting natives thing, had become a fairly common practice throughout the centuries by this time. It's really not all that unlike the concept of taking hostages in the military situation. However, the practice to these 17th century or so explorers could be a bit more complex because while in this case, Hudson and his men definitely did abduct these two Algonquins in a confrontational manner and as a means of leverage going forward, at this point, Hudson didn't really know for sure that he was ever actually coming back this way, right? I mean, he's already five months into this voyage and he believes that his next major destination is Asia via a route that no other human, as far as he and the rest of the planet knows, has ever actually traveled. So, Hudson and Jewett's intentions in taking these hostages at this point could be viewed as pretty dark. But then, this is another example of something that these explorers faced that is nearly impossible for us to properly put into context today. Because what, to our eyes, may look as appalling as it is unthinkable, was in fact, to these navigators, an accepted and necessary evil. A necessary evil component to this overall game. And oh,
2: by the way, it was multifunctional. Abduction of natives basically serves three purposes. Information gathering, hostage taking, and having something to show for them. Explorers usually grabbed a few natives to interrogate them. Info as to the big waters to the west were particularly important at first, though it eventually turned out to pertain to the Great Lakes and not to the Pacific Ocean. In-depth interrogations required more time than the safety of the ship allowed, so taking hostages along was an option. Second, hostages would serve you well if you wanted to return and start or continue trade, especially if you have left a few comrades behind. And third, showing some Indians to the monarch who paid your bills would come in handy when you returned home. Columbus did that too. It would boost the status of the monarch if he or she could show off these newly acquired subjects in a show of exoticism. Europeans were very much interested in the world out there. And then, of course, there is the case
0: of the aforementioned Estavo Gomez, the Portuguese sailor commissioned by Spain, who in 1525 took it upon himself to abduct not one, not two, not three, but fifty native hostages from the area of what we call Maine today. And regardless of the Europeans' motives for these abductions, they certainly were not without repercussions.
1: The Dutch did have uh, uh, some sort of a, a trading post in Maine, in that area. Uh, for a very short period of time. It didn't, it didn't last. The natives up there were very hostile. In fact, they killed most of the crew of one of Cornelius Mai's uh, ships in 1611. They put ashore to uh, trade. The Indians are motioning to them to come ashore, and nine of them uh, get in the longboat, and they pull ashore, pull the boat up on the beach, and the Indians attack them. And uh, only, only one of the nine uh, escapes, unscathed. Uh, two others are badly wounded, but the rest are killed.
0: Could, could this have had anything to do with the fact that Gomez took 50 of them 80 years earlier? Most likely. There was no photographing. There was no video streaming. These explorers wanted to really make an impact. They'd take some people back to Europe
1: with them. People had no idea that people like this existed.
0: This was like going to Mars and bringing back a Martian. Right. Whatever Hudson's motives, he certainly wasn't doing anything to further his diplomatic relations here. But regardless, they now had their guests or hostages. They had gathered their intelligence. They had studied their charts. Now it was time to try out this shortcut to China once and for all.
1: He starts the voyage on the 11th of September, 9-11. In fact, the replica of the half moon was there uh, on that very day in uh, 2001 to make the voyage, to, to repeat the voyage of Hudson. It, it, it had been doing that every year for a number of years. These were school kids aboard the ship, and they witnessed the whole thing. Hudson probably was very optimistic once he reaches the Tappan Z. That's two miles across where the bridge is, and it's still salt water at that point. So it's a big body of water, and he may very well have felt that he was on to something.
0: And the half moon presses on northward for several days until the tide turns and the river narrows. And opportunity, it appears, is escaping them. But that's not all that's escaping. The two that they had abducted on the 9th leap overboard on the 15th and swim for it, and they escape.
1: And they have a story to tell.
0: (laughs) And in keeping with the persistently schizophrenic nature of this voyage upriver, just later that day, Hudson and Jewett encounter another group of natives, whom even the foreboding Jewett describes as loving people by whom the crew of the half-moon were well taken care of.
1: It's feast or famine or or, uh, friend or foe.
0: He gets um, around where Albany is, where you are, and with his soundings returning depths of as little as one to two fathoms, six to twelve feet, Hudson realizes it is time to face the hard facts, that wherever this diminishing stream may lead, it is not to Asia.
1: An ocean-going ship would not be able to make it through. And that's when they realized that this is nothing but a watershed and not a uh, passageway.
0: And now as the fall is setting in, they have to kind of face facts that this voyage is essentially over. They have to get back across the Atlantic before it gets too cold. So they started their way back down the river, but there were some people waiting
1: for him. Right.
0: A number of canoes coming on October 1st, but there was one particular canoe, quote, hanging under our stern with one man in it from Jewett's Journal. Right. He wouldn't go away. He just sort of lingered there most of the day. And then when no one was looking, he climbed in a window and he go- actually steals Jewett's pillow, two shirts, two bandoliers, and the cook shoots him yeah. in the chest and kills him. Yeah. Then another man comes and tries to overtake the sloop. They chop off his hand and get rid of him. Then it's sort of, all right, let's just get out of here. They say, no more sounding, no more nothing. We're going back to Europe. But the next day, they encounter one of the two hostages further downriver. And as they look up, suddenly they're being fired at by over 100 people from shore. Hudson's crew kills somewhere between 8 and 10 of them, maybe 12 of them, and just hightails it out of there. They set their sails and hold firm by their compass, east by northeast, 3,500 miles across the Atlantic. And the next stop for them, well, it's Europe, but it's not Amsterdam, is it? No,
1: no, they put in at Dartmouth. Why? maybe he had in mind it would uh, mitigate any punishment the English might have for him for working for the East India
0: Company. Right. The, his story was, well, the English are holding me because I went to work for a rival nation.
1: Yeah, this is it. There are all kinds of stories connected with Hudson, whether he was a spy or whether he took the voyage only to collect the navigator's chart or yeah. use by the, the English.
0: For the third time in three years, Henry Hudson and had failed to carry out his assignment for his employers. Furthermore, he did nothing to advance diplomatic relations for the English, the Dutch, or any European nation, with the indigenous people occupying what would become the most racially diverse city in the world. What he had succeeded in doing was uniting otherwise disparate Algonquin communities against a singular new enemy who came from a place far, far away in a strange, offensive and intimidating floating house. Again, this story is complicated. Did Hudson set out to create all these conflicts out in the new world? No, there's no logic to that. But again, it's cause and effect. And when we look at Yap's explanation of the four key components of international exploration of this era, That's why it becomes so important and here's where it starts to really explain a lot about what the heck was going on here and how it all unfolded in this particular way. Discovery, Trade, Settlement, Colonization. So, when we align each area of focus with each key character in this study, the story becomes much more clearly illustrated, much more understandable. It starts to make a little bit of sense. Now, I said a little bit. (laughs) Because it never makes complete sense. But let's keep going. I mean, this is a long time ago, and we're never going to know for sure about everything. But I think to really... Try to get into the mindset to try to understand as much as we can, not just of Henry Hudson, but of any of these intrepid international explorers of what I'll call the pre modern age, for lack of a better term. Let's just say the Middle Ages through the 19th century. Okay. No phones, no photographs, no air travel. It's a different system of worldwide communication, one that, again, is hard for us. To really comprehend today, it's a system that is infinitely more self reliant in terms of each man for himself to a large degree. And it's why I keep saying it these explorers were bold because they went out into the unknown and had to be ready to face whatever challenges might be out there unknown challenges. That's scary. It's also hard to plan for, and it's why we see these ships. Arming themselves. I mean, these are not just floating information gatherers. They are that. But in addition to stocking provisions and all that and their navigational tools and so forth, they must arm themselves. All of these ships. They had to be floating attack vessels as and when necessary. And they had to be good at it. Yet another necessary evil for any such international explorer. This was dangerous work. You had to be as much a warrior as a navigator, always. Now, if you haven't seen the cult classic 1979 film by Walter Hill, The Warriors, then please hit pause and go watch it. While it's aged a bit, it never really seems to disappoint anyone, especially on the topic of New York. Now, disclaimer, there's a lot of bad language and there is some violence. It's a gang movie, but it's an interesting story because the challenges that we see the warriors face on their intrepid journey from the massive gang rally gone bad way up in Van Cortlandt Park in the north end of the Bronx to their home turf refuge of Coney, which is on the far ocean end of Brooklyn. It's not that unlike what Hudson and every other international explorer of this pre-modern age had to deal with at some point. Encountering natives was a part of the deal, or, as in the case of the warriors, the local dudes who controlled that local turf. This was a standard component of the job detail and the methodologies of doing it for each individual explorer or gang leader can tell a lot about the story swan the leader of the warriors who was not only concerned with getting his crew back to coney island safely but he was simultaneously concerned with maintaining and even building respect among the other gangs particularly with the gramercy rifts who really held the power in other words swan wanted to build alliances hudson by comparison, really didn't care about the major powers that be, and he didn't care what reputation he left behind, as long as he was able to go off on another mission to keep searching for this thing, this elusive shortcut to Asia. So when Swan and the bold surviving members of his crew do actually make it back to the beach at Coney that gray morning, his work is not done. He still has to have that showdown with the bad guys, the rogues, whose leader is so masterfully played by David Patrick Kelly. Yeah. You know what I mean. Warriors, come out to play. Warriors, come out to play. I mean, that's scary stuff. I don't care what era you're coming from. And though seemingly surrounded and outmanned by this rogue band, Swan, a first-time war chief rising to the occasion, not only defeats the rogues through his strength, tact, and courage, but in doing so, earns the everlasting respect of the primary power-that-be. The Gramercy Riffs, who witnessed the whole thing, paving the way for infinite respect, alliances, and opportunities in the future for Swan and his crew. Just like the very next major character who sails across the Atlantic and sets foot on this incredible island. Before we properly thank Charlie, I want to strongly recommend one of his incredible books, A Journey into Mohawk Country, the Journal of Harmon Bogart, 1634 and 1635, from Syracuse University Press, which is available at most major booksellers. Van Bogart is yet another indelibly remarkable character whom we will be getting to in other episodes down the line, and we strongly recommend Charlie's remarkable illustration of and insight on this inimitable early settler of this incredible island. Dr. Charles T. Gehring and his New Netherland Institute in Albany have been instrumental not just in shepherding this project along, but in the cultivation of the entire study of this lost colony of New Netherland. Charlie, mein vriend, bedankt meneer. Bedankt. Island is an original production. Researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate James Mallon. Executive producer Alec Baldwin for Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camarada Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. To our growing island audience, Vedant, thank you. You guys are cool. We want to let you know about our companion podcast, Island Voices, because there are so many cool, incredible people here with us today. We don't want to just have to talk about people who were here 400 years ago. Island Voices is available both on YouTube and wherever you listen to island. The YouTube channel is Island Voices Podcast. Island Voices Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to island. Climb aboard. History is cool.